Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and another episode of Greens with Envy. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined as always by my friend and colleague, Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano. This is the podcast where we talk about where we've been, who we've seen, maybe courses we've played, and this month Guy has no shortage of courses that he played, that he can talk about. So many, in fact, that we are already resigned to the fact that we will not get through them all. Guy, not too long ago, you went on a week-long two-state journey along the Gulf of Mexico through Louisiana and Mississippi, and you've already written a few features about that. The longest feature yet is the cover feature in the forthcoming March issue, which will be online next week. But this time you went through Nevada, mostly Las Vegas. You're back. You didn't lose a lot of money, it looks like. You've made a few master's bets. How you doing? Took a red eye home. Ooh. Got home yesterday. We're recording this on a Monday. Got home Sunday morning. As you can tell, I've been a little bit of cantankerous today. <laughs> you? But no, I'm doing great. Yeah. I took a red eye not too long ago home from the uh, GCSAA conference and trade show, and I think I took two naps on that Friday afternoon after I got home. Uh, red eyes, they're a necessary evil and folks who can take a red eye and sleep on them the entire time and then go about the next day as if nothing had happened, more power to you. I cannot guy. It sounds like you can't either. I slept a bit, but, uh, yeah, yesterday, yesterday was rough, but at least you get back early. So nearly a week in Nevada, mostly Las Vegas, uh, a couple courses in Mesquite. Do you want to do a – you have a printout from the National Golf Foundation. Do you want to do a 30,000-foot overview of golf in Nevada as we've done golf in Mississippi and golf in Louisiana the last few weeks? Yeah, for the impetus of this trip, it was split. Half the time was on our annual road trip with our golf league. We went to a place called Mesquite, which is on basically on the Nevada-Arizona border. Uh, great golf tourist destination as we'll get into here on this podcast and i also did a few days in las vegas visiting golf course superintendents and facilities in the city there and what a giant city that has become and i didn't even make it onto the strip it was just pretty much work the whole two days there which was great but no i mean nevada so 108 golf courses in the state of Nevada. Uh, there probably won't be that many more built, not because of the demand and people moving to places like Las Vegas and Reno and even Mesquite now. It's just the fact that water is such a premium there that it's going to be really tough to get the permitting mm-hmm. to maybe ever build a golf course again in Las Vegas is what some of the people on the ground told me. So what they have there golf-wise is probably what's going to be there. Uh, for a long time. In fact, there was a course that was just sold because the uh, the land was so valuable for housing because I think it's something like 50,000 people a year moving to Las Vegas. It's it's one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. So, you know, it's a market that maybe right now with how well golf is doing and how many people are moving there could potentially use some more golf here in the next few years, but it's a place where there could actually be less golf just because of how valuable the uh, land that has basically water hookups is but no, there are uh, 108 golf courses in the state of Nevada, and it's mainly a uh, public golf state. I think that the, that's a big misconception there. So 76 of those 
courses are public golf courses. And I spent pretty much all my time on public golf courses. I, I guess I visited two private golf courses of the five that I went to in Las Vegas. And then in Mesquite, it was all public resort courses uh, with my friends. Before we get into any of the highlights of your week, you have this printout from the NGF, which is where you got the numbers. They have two very interesting numbers on there. 152,000 golfers in the state of Nevada last year and 4.8 million rounds played last year, give or take. Both really good numbers. The rounds were up almost 17% over 2020. The number of golfers dropped 2% year over year. That's fascinating. I wonder how many states are like that. Well, think about what happened in 2020 and one of the hardest hit places in the United States when you look at what some of the restrictions and oh, sure. the lack of people traveling did to the economy it was Las Vegas. So that is a place probably where people had to leave the game because of necessity. Interesting, yeah. I do, I do wonder if Nevada is in line or, or if Nevada with some states or if Nevada is a severe outlier that the number of golfers dropped but the rounds jumped well over the national average, 17% almost. Yeah, because people coming in from, you know, once the restrictions yeah. got lifted, people coming yeah. in from all over the United States taking winter golf trips uh, over the winter of 2021 and now the winter of 2022, uh, people like my friends, I mean, we had a group of 24 mm -hmm. people. We played three and a half days in Mesquite. Not one of us was from Nevada. So you have a lot of that in uh, the States. Where there is warm weather in the, the winter, winter, golfable weather, pleasant golfable weather. Mm -hmm. I guess there's a difference between golfable weather and pleasant golfable <laughs> weather. You could golf in a foot of snow. Uh, it wouldn't be a fun round. Are just Things are so busy. It's even difficult to describe unless you're on the ground there. I had a chance to go to Phoenix Scottsdale and Tucson over the holidays. And, you know, basically every tee time's filled at most facilities. And it was the same thing in Las Vegas and Mesquite. I remember uh, touring Angel Park. It's a, geez, I'm trying to, to count, 48-hole facility. That's such an odd number. But two 18-hole courses and a 12-hole short course. 50 greens, uh, director of golf course maintenance, Brent Chaney, and his team maintained. And it was on a, a Tuesday morning. And just trying to drive around with Brett, not only through the golf courses, but especially behind the clubhouse where everybody gathers before their rounds, was nearly impossible, and it makes me wonder, how does anybody get work done you know, with the, the limited winter daylight yeah. and just the demand on these golf courses, especially this time of year? I'm sure it's a different story in the summer. In the summer, though, you have to, to get out early just to beat the heat. So, you know, I had some superintendents tell me that their start times are like 4 a.m. One even told me that sometimes the crew will go in at 3 a.m. Now, that's summer, but in the winter, they're still in by 5 a.m. when it's still yeah. dark out just to try to find a way from uh, to get around all this play. It, it isn't, it is, golf is doing unbelievable in places with pleasant, golfable weather this winter. I mean, rounds are even up over last year. Basically, every facility I went to, every tee time's booked, you know, from whenever they let golfers on the course until last tee time. And, you know, there hasn't really, at least in the desert, you know, I, I haven't been on the ground in Florida, and I don't know what the weather has been like in Florida this winter. I'll, watching the PGA Tour events, it's looked pretty pretty good, at least yeah. where the Honda Classic was in Palm Beach Gardens and in Orlando where uh, the 
Arnold Palmer Invitational was played at Bay Hill, but uh, you know, it, it's just crazy how much golf is being played by all these people that don't only live in these markets, but coming in and playing, you know, whether it's on golf trips in the winter or people that have second homes there in the winter right now. And that was the thing that I think stuck out most to me about Nevada was just the level of activity and uh, how many golfers were coming in and out of every course. And basically it's like, we have a bunch of golf factories right now and yet somehow conditions are outstanding and superintendents are finding ways to get the work done with limited crews. I mean, think of uh, trying to fill a golf course maintenance roster in Las Vegas. It's tough mm-hmm. everywhere in the country, but think of all the competing uh, tourist-based businesses that you're competing well, with. And one of the things in Las Vegas is when when you said you didn't even make it to the Strip, I was going to say it doesn't matter because you could go back in 10 years and it could be a completely different city. There's always something being built in Las Vegas. So for an industry like golf course maintenance that competes – so heavily with construction, among other things. You always have construction in Las Vegas. There's always going to be people who in any other city in this country could probably be great members of your crew who will never be a member of your crew because they're going to make more work in construction. And they'll always work construction until their bodies break down. It, it's a very, it's a very uh, extreme city, I think, in that respect. For yeah, sure. and it's the same thing there that we've talked about on this podcast with other places uh, you have basically the six to eight, you know, I think I called them what the, the core employees yeah. that are holding maintenance teams together. It's no different in Las Vegas than it is anywhere else in the country right now. And it's so important. And I wrote a column about this, the reward, those people that you are your core employees that keep coming back year after year after year and doing a great job. And I think they're the, they're the people that are keeping superintendents sane right now is that they have, although the numbers might not be great, the people that they have that come back every year are just so darn reliable and do such a darn good job and know these properties so well that uh, they're going to ensure that the conditions remain very good for all these people that want to play there. And I also think that uh, golfers, at least on the public side, and most of my visits were on the public side there, and then we played all resort public courses in our golf package, are very understanding of the golf course conditions right now and why certain things might not be getting done. But unless you really have a trained eye and you play these golf courses, you wouldn't be able to tell that they're getting record numbers of play. That's how darn good the superintendents and core employees are. I mean, really the only place you can tell is on tee boxes and just the number of divots, but everything else is just so darn good and so fun to play out there. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the surge has definitely hit the Nevada desert and it, you know, 4.8 million rounds of golf played in Nevada last year. I think that number's going to be over 5 million here this year. Yeah. Well, I mean, five over 4.8 is not much of an increase. If it increased 17% last year, almost uh, to get to 5 million, it would be about a 4% increase. That's not that much. I don't, if I'm doing my math right. Yeah. And the, uh, the golf is really only played in, a few pockets too, you know, the Reno Tahoe right. area. And then that whole area from Las Vegas to Mesquite. And really there's very little, I mean, we have the map in front of us. I mean, look how few dots there are in the middle of Nevada. Oh yeah. One or two, literally one or two courses. Um, now there's no way we're going to get through every course. You came back with a pile of scorecards and yardage books that when stacked on top of each other is about as thick as a decent sized paperback book. 
So let's do this. Instead of going course by course, uh, let's kind of look at some of your highlights, whether that was a really good hole or a really good round or things that stood out to you about certain courses that you really enjoyed and think could be adapted by other courses. You want to, you want to, you... yeah, my, my, my main intention with my work visits on that trip was to learn as much as I could about the water situation okay. in that part of the desert. And I'm really fortunate because I met with a tremendous group of superintendents in Las Vegas. I met with Dale Hahn, who's been at TPC Summerlin for 20 years. I met Scott Sutton at the club at Sunrise, who is, uh, he started working on golf courses in 1980 in Las Vegas when he was 15 years old, working for Jim Colbert, the, the former PGA Tour player yeah. and Champions Tour player, making $2.84 an hour. He's uh, been the growing superintendent now for seven courses in Las Vegas, with the most recent one being the club at Sunrise, which was uh, quite the public works project that ran through a golf course. I met with George Filopoulos at Red Rock Country Club. He's been there since uh, 2013, and he's been in Las Vegas since 2006. His story is pretty common. He's from the uh, Northeast. He's from New Hampshire and thought he was going to go out and maybe work a year or two in Las Vegas and just hasn't left. That story is pretty common there. You know, someone goes there when they're young and, you know, wants to do the Vegas thing at a point in their career and, you know, try it for a year or two and then go on to, you know, back home or somewhere else. He, he ended up staying uh, – Met with Nathan Shipley at Las Vegas National, who um, has been in Las Vegas now for a few years. He's an interesting story. He is a former accountant for Mrs. Fields and spent uh, 15 years in the accounting business. Wait, and Mrs. Fields, the, the cookie, cookie company. Yeah. Okay. Then decided to give <laughs> Turf tr a try when he was in his wow. uh, mid to late 30s. So he went back to school and uh, was getting a turf degree while working as an accountant while raising a couple children. And now he's at Las Vegas at... Las Vegas Nationals, the superintendent. And, of course, I mentioned Brett Cheney at Angel Park, who, you know, is in his second Nevada stint. He's from Illinois, worked on the Gulf Coast, worked in Las Vegas, went back to the Gulf Coast, and now he's back in Las Vegas again at one of the busiest facilities in America. And we'll get into Angel Park here in a minute. And then, uh, you know, I did one official work visit in Mesquite before meeting up with my friends, and that was uh, – with Tanner Schoenfelder, who is uh, the 27-year-old superintendent at Wolf Creek, hmm. who right. I interviewed in 2016 as at the Jacobson Future Turf Managers event. I did a little roundtable with some of the people that I thought had a chance in the industry at the end, and he was one of them, and he was a college student at the time. And here he is, uh, 27 years old, at Wolf Creek, which is just an unbelievable course in Mesquite, and he's already – uh, three years as the superintendent there. So he got the head job when he was 24. So talk about a fast riser. So, you know, in going around with these six superintendents, I had a lot of questions, but it was basically to see how they manage water, how they handle things like overseed, how they handle playing conditions in the desert, how they handle getting so much play. You know, when you're doing so many visits in a short amount of time, you don't have a chance to really study too many golf holes. So we were just seeing parts of the course really – that kind of told the water or the management story. Uh, one thing that I thought was really cool and just how all the visits worked out. So Red Rock Country Club had a reverse overseed, which is the first time I've ever seen a reverse overseed in person. So the you, fairways you posted were, photos of that. That was wild. Yeah. So the fairways are dormant in the winter, and then the rough is overseeded with ryegrass. And then, of course, you know when they get into the um, uh, spring and summer and early fall months, you know, the Bermuda grass is 
popping. So it was really cool to see that. I'd never seen a contrast like that besides on TV. So you're, you're going around and you know, the, the course has views of the, the Vegas Strip and views of Red Rock Canyon, which is a national recreational area. Great hiking spot, which I didn't have a chance to make it to, but I've been there before in the background. And you just see this unbelievable color contrast, which I'd never seen before. And then that next day, I go over to Las Vegas National, and they have an overseed. So got to see that. And then uh, TPC Summerlin paints the fairways in T. So I got to see a course that was painted. Mm-hmm. So it was awesome to see the contrast. And I posted a photo on Twitter yesterday in Mesquite. Got to see a Canyon to Canyon overseed at Wolf Creek. Got to see a painted course at the Palms Golf Club where tees, greens, and fairways are painted. And then got to see a uh, two courses in Falcon Ridge and the o- Oasis Canyon course where it was overseeded tees, greens, and fairways, but dormant Bermuda rough. So it was really cool to kind of post some pictures and show the contrast. And I think the point here is that there are different ways to satisfy customers. It doesn't have to be just one way in the desert. You just don't have to do a wall-to-wall overseed or you just don't have to paint. You got to, you know, find out what works best for your clientele and the resources that you have and the type of golf course that you want to present. And I, they all played lovely that, that, or all, you know, the ones that I did play all played lovely in their own way. They all looked lovely in their own way. And I think that's really cool that, you know, it used to be that in the desert, whether it was on the Coachella Valley of California or Arizona or, Nevada, everything had to be wall-to-wall overseed in the winter. Mostly everything had to be, especially at the higher end. But now, you know, I think golfers are starting to really find out that dormant Bermuda plays really darn well and it uses less water. <laughs> so I think the demand for wall-to-wall overseed, especially as a new generation of golfers comes along, is going to start to shrink. And I think courses are going to really think rethink how they manage that water in the winter. Also, Everybody seemed to be on a different water system. You know, some courses were on recycled water. Some courses only had potable water available to them. Some did recycled water for, like, fairways and tees, but then did potable water for greens and surrounds. You know, some courses had wells. So the water situation was so different everywhere I visited, too. And uh, these really are master irrigators. So you don't get the pest and disease pressure in the desert of Nevada that maybe they get in other parts of the country. In fact, you don't get the, the same pest and disease pressure in the desert in Nevada that nearly everyone else in the country gets. But wow, you have to be so good at water management and you have to look at uh, rates and cycles all the time. I mean, you have to look at your apps and irrigation computers and these are the best irrigators in the world really in a lot of ways because the resource is so pressure they, is so precious. They only have so much water available to them. Uh, golf's under a microscope, not quite like it is in other parts of the country in Nevada, but it's certainly being watched by people that don't play golf and don't understand golf. And, uh, yeah, each year it seems like every superintendent gets better and better at it. You know, some superintendents said that the, the job is maybe easier in other parts of the country than, than they've worked because you don't have that pest and disease pressure. And then some told me that it's actually harder there because irrigation is such a focus. So I think it just depends on on personalities and what your skill set is. Some of the soil was really good, sandy soil, but then some of the soil was awful, this uh, type of soil called caliche. (laughs) Uh, Brett Chaney at Angel Park uh, took a probe into 
uh, one of the fairways on the course. And get this, Matt, the probe only went two inches into the ground. So obviously they can't <laughs> they can't pull cores on those fairways no. because the cores would be destroyed. And you know some of the other courses I visited had issues with caliche soil. That just is what it was built upon. Hmm. I didn't really know much about it. I know a lot about it now, and I don't ever want to like stick a stake into it or or an air fire or something like that. So you would think. You know, my inclination was, okay, I'm going to the desert in Nevada. They maybe only get a couple inches of rain a year. You know, Scott Sutton at the Club of Sunrise told me that last year they got 1.64 inches of rain. So I thought, okay, you know, everything's going to be the same everywhere, you know, unified soil bases, unified irrigation practices. But there are so many different pockets and microclimates there. You know, frost becomes an issue in the winter. I didn't I didn't really envision that. I probably should have done a little more uh, research on temperatures in southern Nevada, but you're pretty mountainous in spots. So there are actually a lot more, despite the fact that it doesn't get that much rain and there isn't much pest and disease pressure, if any at all, there are a lot of vil- variabilities in golf course management there. And, yeah, everything has to be uh, studied. I, I saw a lot of TDRs and POGOs and – you know, some courses had SPIO sensors, so you saw sophisticated irrigation management. You know, uh, the the better maintenance facilities or the, the places that have, you know, administrative areas or offices in their maintenance facility have rooms devoted just to their irrigation computers. Like you walk in, into the maintenance office at TPC Summerlin, and there's the um, administrative assistance desk up front, right across from the um, room where all the irrigation computers are, and those things are just being watched all the time by the trained professionals that work there and, you know, just getting that, those water numbers precise is so darn important because the resource is so limited there and there's pressure to get good playing conditions. I mean, yeah, it gets hot in the summer, but people are playing year round. I mean, the club at sunrise does 60,000 rounds a year. And then between the, the two eighteen hole course regulation courses and the par three cloud nine course, at Angel Park, they did over 125,000 rounds last year. So just think of how unbelievably busy it is. Even a place like Wolf Creek, which is a super high-end uh, public-slash-resort course, is pushing 40,000 rounds now. Hmm. It's all the time. It really is. And, you know, overseeding usually happens depending on the course, you know, late August, September. And that's such a critical time out there for the facilities that do overseed. And uh, it really is a year-round, much more – year-round and much more um, variable than I envisioned going out there. There's a lot to unpack there. One question about irrigation before we get into some of the courses that you'd mentioned there. I really find it fascinating that there are so many different soil varieties. There are so many different uh, options being used by superintendents and other turf pros out of there. And there are so many different types of water. You mentioned the recycled. You mentioned the, the potable on and on. It seems like Las Vegas in general and Nevada, or Las Vegas in particular, I should say, and Nevada in general, could really be a laboratory of sorts for any course that it feels like it's on the brink of having its water restricted a little bit, whether that's in Arizona or California, Colorado, anywhere out west for now, but who knows in the future. Uh, Because there are so many different places to study. Like you said, there's no one solution and there's no one situation so you go out there you you kind of do some recon uh do you think nevada will kind of become a laboratory of sorts for courses that are on the brink of of having to change how they use their water 
Look, if I was in a place where I knew that there were potential water management changes coming, I would go and do exactly what I did and yeah. spend a few days with the superintendents there. And I didn't even mention, Matt, the different turf varieties I saw. You know, right. Obviously saw Bermuda grass, saw Poa Trivon greens, saw bent grass greens, saw ryegrass roughs and fairways, but saw Bermuda grass rough and fairways. And also the club at Sunrise, where Scott Sutton works, who's like the dean of Las Vegas area superintendents, grew up there and, like I said, has been working on golf facilities there since he's 15 years old, so more than 40 years. He has wall-to-wall, or I should say greens, tees, and fairways past Palom. And first course in Las Vegas to go with past Palom as their turf, turf selection. And the reason they did that is because the water quality is just – so high in salt, it's so awful, and that was the turf grass variety species that gave them the best chance to succeed mm-hmm. with that. And now, you know, Scott told me that um, he could see more courses going to Pass Palom in the Las Vegas market because of how well it's performed at the club at Sunrise, and because of how you know just awful some of the water water they receive is. Cool. But yeah, if you're going to do a any type of water management study, you know that would be one of the places I would really go to, and you know. I was doing quick visits everywhere, you know, five or six visits in two and a half days doesn't give you that much time. But I got to go into some pump stations, which was pretty cool. And you just see the wear on those pumps because they're running yeah. constantly. Yeah. I can't imagine what the um, the life cycle of the systems are because the ground is so rough there and you're running irrigation all the time. I'm sure the irrigation life st- cycle there is um, a lot less than what it is in other parts of the country. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's at the forefront of... Uh, Everything a superintendent and their team does in that area, southern Nevada. I'm sure it's different in Reno where they get a little bit more rainfall. But in that part of Nevada, it's definitely all driven by irrigation decisions. And it's a tourism area, right? And golf is part of the tourism puzzle. So, you know, fortunately, there are a lot of elected leaders that understand the value of golf. They don't quite fight the tussles that maybe um, the industry does in California. Uh, you know, Arizona, too, is another place that's really golf-friendly. But like I said before, because water is so limited, I, I believe Lake Mead, from what I read, is at a record low level right now, and that's where a lot of people get their water. It, you're, you're not going to see a lot of new golf development there, and the industry is going to be watched pretty closely. But luckily, it's in an area where tourism means so much. And I didn't even mention, Matt, the other side of it. So you would think that because it doesn't rain that much in Las Vegas, they wouldn't have that much issues with um, flooding or erosion, but when it does rain, the soils don't drain very well, and erosion is a is a giant issue on on some of the golf courses, and it can take you know weeks to clean up from a one inch rain. Which you know people in other parts of the country are saying, oh, one inch rain, I've gotten that, I get that in forty five minutes a right. couple of times a year. You know, but when I, you're not used to it, you know. Remember yeah. last year on this podcast, we talked about the mountains in North Carolina, and they get what over a hundred inches of rain right right, right now. They're, over the last yeah. few years, they've had over a hundred inches it's of rain. Forest, yeah. So even though Southern Nevada, you know, the, the courses might get, you know, between one and five inches of rain, depending where you're at, doesn't mean that you don't have issues of flooding and erosion, too, to deal with. Yeah. Well, and it's just like you go somewhere where they don't have winter weather and, you know, you live in the Midwest and the Northeast and you have plow trucks and you have salt and you have yep. uh, folks coming out with their shovels and, and it's not easy, but you know how to clear it. When you don't get regular rainfall it's the same thing you aren't prepared you don't have the infrastructure to 
to drain it and, and handle it. So, you know, it's not anything that uh, they're doing wrong. It's just they aren't built for that. Yeah, and I want to talk specifically about the club at Sunrise. So okay. that course has gone through a few different names over the years and closed because of um, a severe flood in it was either 2012 or 2013. And then it was part of a huge public works project be because the Flamingo Wash and the Las Vegas Wash go through the course. So it's kind of ratted as a Y, just imagine. Okay. With the two washes going through the course, they meet in the middle of the golf course, and then it all flows out to, to Lake Mead. So they closed the golf course. You know, Randy Heckenkamper was the architect, you know, can't do too much with the routing, but they did make a pretty imaginative golf course. But the whole purpose of it was to uh, basically help water move through the city when it floods and goes out to Lake Lake Mead. And I asked uh, Scott Sutton, I go, boy, th this land here plays a pretty important part of Las Vegas. And you also see a lot of garbage, too, flow down there because, you know, people mm. throw garbage in the washes and they just, you know, it, just, it flows yeah. to wherever. Sure. And he described it as, you know, I go, what body part would you be for Las Vegas? And he, he goes, you know, he pauses, thinks about it. He's never been asked that. He goes, we're basically the anus of Las Vegas. So you've heard the phrase. I, I, I figured that's where he was going once you. You hear yeah. the phrase, uh, bleep flows downstream. Well, that downstream is the club at sunrise. You know, fortunately, the golf course sits way above the, the washes, but you know, when, when, when it rains, just imagine all that, that water basically rushing from everywhere in Las Vegas through the property you manage. Not, not an easy site whatsoever, <sighs> you know, hence the decision to go with the past Palom grass. But, you know, we could talk about all these superintendents for a long time because they're, they're excellent, but think about it. Scott Sutton is a institution in the Las Vegas turf scene uh, over 40 years. Like I said, helped build seven golf courses. He's got a couple of irrigation certifications. I mean, he is one of the industry's water gurus. I kind of can, Pair him to our friend Anthony Williams. He's kind of mm -hmm. like the Anthony Williams. Yeah, he's yeah. the Anthony Williams of Las Vegas. It seems like he's he's certified in everything, knows everybody. <laughs> uh, always does, giving time to people. I think, does he have 55 black belts, though? No, I don't no. think he does that. Okay, okay. But I think he may play golf a little more than Anthony. Okay. So anyway, uh, you know, my first day in Las Vegas, I went to Las Vegas National, which um, really cool old school golf course, opened in 1961, one of the oldest courses in Las Vegas. And inside the clubhouse there, which looks like it hasn't changed since 1961, which is a good <laughs> thing, and I'll explain why. Yeah. Uh, it's home of the Las Vegas Golf Hall of Fame. And there's one superintendent in it, Bill Rort, who is an absolute legend out there. Everybody knows him or knew of him. Uh, you know, hopefully, Scott Sutton is the next superintendent that goes in there. So if anybody in Las Vegas is listening, <laughs> work to get Scott Sutton into the Las Vegas Golf Hall of Fame Campaign because now. his contributions to golf in Las Vegas over 40-plus years now is immeasurable. So, uh, yeah, getting to see him and learn about you know his career and how he's working on this challenging site and you know the course, I believe it was called Winterwood when it opened, um, the club at Sunrise. Uh, that's where Scott also learned the game as a junior too. So you know, really it's probably going to be his last golf course construction project. And, you know, to have it come for his career in a loop like that is pretty darn special. And he was showing me trees that he planted in the 1980s when he worked there that are now big trees, uh, problem trees in some cases. Can you imagine that planting a tree on a golf course, um, in like the mid 1980s and coming back 35 years <laughs> later, and now it's blocking sunlight from, 
from one of your greens, like you're, you're probably thinking, why, why did I do that? Don't plant trees. But, not on, not but the a, trees not do the course, give people shade on the golf course, which is very important and do add yeah. to the, the beauty yeah, of a yeah. golf course because the club at the sunrise was in a pretty uh, urbanized neighborhood. So he was really fascinating to meet because of everything that he's accomplished. And also, you know, I went straight from TPC Summerlin to the club at sunrise. So I got to spend a few hours with Dale Hahn, who's another absolute um, turf legend of the desert. Um, he's done 20 PGA Tour events at TPC Summerlin. Uh, he is overseeing a turf reduction plan that started in the mid-2000s, and they have a turf reduction binder he was showing me that was about eight inches thick. So every time you reduce oh turf, you have to document that yeah. and report that to the water authority if there's a rebate involved or have that for your own records. And, wow. you know, one of the things that he did that I thought was really imaginative was when they were thinking of what to do with the areas that they were removing turf in at TPC Summerlin, he started taking walks just through the natural desert landscape near his home at, with a field guide and with some stakes and started taking note of the soils there and what plant species were there and how they were doing. Because, you know, one of the mistakes that people make with these turf reductions, especially when they're rush, is that they plant things either too closely together or things that maybe don't aren't natural to the landscape. And I saw some courses where some of that has really come back to cause an issue 10 to 15 years later. So, Mm -hmm. you know, ingenious thing by Dale to take note of what's actually in the desert around the golf course and what can survive and um, do well without a lot of water and, you know, not grow too close to the, to another plant. So that would be one thing I recommend no matter where you live in the country is, and if you're thinking about putting in a native area or getting rid of some turf or doing some fescue areas, is just walk around your natural landscapes, you know, whether it's prairie in the Midwest or the, you know, the forest lands of the, the Northeast or, you know, the marshes of Florida and just take note of what the natural stuff is. Because if those things are growing well around the golf course uncluttered, they're probably going to grow well on a golf course. Yeah. What else do you want to talk about from that week? Out west, you mentioned a few courses that you wanted to talk about a little deeper. We got to talk about Wolf Creek. All right, it's the uh, I don't play video games, but everyone knows it as the course on the video game. It is a surreal setting in Mesquite. You you just kind of wind through canyons, and there's not a home on the golf course. Uh, the first three holes play uphill, and there's what the superintendent Tanner Schoenfelder calls Eagle's Nest views where there, okay. there are these perches throughout the golf course where you just feel like you can see so much golf land. And I, I, I think I put it on a tweet. I would kind of classify it as if a awesome golf course met a UTV park that met hiking trails. It is a surreal hmm. landscape. Um, there are holes that just, you don't know how they fit a green in there or how you were able to play around that canyon. And it's just such a peaceful, calm place, uh, so visually stunning. You wonder how they even built a golf course on such a rugged landscape. Who did build it? Uh, the architect's name was Dennis Ryder. Okay. I think it was the only golf course he did. Wow. So it opened in 2000. It's 22 years old now. Uh, like I said, it's the course that everybody knows from the video game. And I've never played the video game, whatever the video Nor game is, but... Uh, Imagine it's either Tiger Woods or yeah. Like so that. I had a chance to yeah. tour the back nine with Tanner and then play it with my friends. I mean, it's a five and a half, six hour round because of how long it takes to drive, you know, through the canyons. I mean, you're seriously driving through a canyon to go from 
hole to hole. I mean, the you, you could just drive around that golf course and be perfectly entertained. In fact, you might even be more entertained than hitting your, your own ball because it's a very tough golf course. But Well, we've talked about this in the past three years. Yeah. But just a surreal spot, uh, canyon to canyon overseed is how I would describe it. One of the most, you know, you go through hundreds of these and you remember them all if you're really passionate about what you do. But just one of those landscapes and one of those days that you just never want it to end, you know, having done a tour there in the morning with somebody who I got to interview when he was in college and, <laughs> you know, coming through the industry. And you could say at 27 years old, you're still coming through the industry, even though Tanner is uh, three years in as superintendent at uh, such an amazing place like Wolf Creek. And then, you know, getting a chance to go out there with your friends, you're just like, yeah, that was a darn good day in 80 degree weather in March, which, you know, not a lot of parts of the country get 80 degree weather in March. Uh, and the rest of the Mesquite courses that we went to, the Palms, the Oasis Canyon and Falcon Ridge were also unbelievable. Um, though everyone's tee sheet was filled there. You had a bunch of Northerners from all over the place coming to Mesquite and play golf. And it's really one of those like golf destinations where if you're thinking of taking a buddy's trip, I would highly recommend it. I know we're not really in the business of recommending where to go to play golf, but well, it was so cool to see Las Vegas, you know, yes a no. city, golf, how golf is in the city, and then go to Mesquite and spend a few days there and kind of see a destination golf market. And it was quite a contrast. And like I said, uh, amazing time in Nevada. We could talk all day, but, you know, we'll, we'll cut this podcast off. And uh, I can't wait, wait to go through my interview transcriptions. And I was just kind of putting some notes together today. Just so much to process. Uh, seeing what nine, ten courses in five days. Yeah. That that's visual overload. I didn't even mention the night golf. Well, do you want to mention the night golf? Well, I'll just say Angel <laughs> Park has a course <laughs> called Cloud Nine. I mentioned the short yeah, course. The, yep. yep. It, you can play at night, so you can just imagine a night golf course in Las Vegas that is uh just how popular that is. Does it's, it does it seem to you, real quick aside, does it seem to you like there are this is a growing trend I think in the industry, more and more night courses. I think it's because maybe my obsession or our obsession with short courses and par three courses, yeah, we're but... starting to find more and more of them. Yeah. Maybe or hear so. about more and more. Well, there's, there's what is it, Golf Center to Plains in Illinois. There was uh, the Aero Club in Which... Myrtle Beach. Uh, Judd Spicer has a story about the lights at Indio yep, in, in the, our upcoming in, March issue. In the March issue. Um, Cloud Nine got to be a few more that we've seen and just aren't thinking of it. Oh, the yeah. The, there are a lot of them and a lot more than you would think. Yeah. And they're going to be a lot more coming too because of the um, amount of people that are playing golf and just the popularity of short courses right now. Yeah. And and it's only really going to be ever. Do you ever see the day when we could, I don't want to go completely off the rails here, but do you ever see the day that there there's not a lot, but there are at least some uh, lighted courses for uh, – Maybe nine regulation length holes, maybe not eighteen, but you're playing longer holes under the lights. That's a good question. I remember I went to an event at Sage Valley a few years ago, and they had the three what they called dormy holes, mm-hmm. which were three regulation holes that were lit at night for the you know members or guests that were staying in the cottages. Hmm. If you're not That's familiar cool. with Sage Valley, it's a super high end course in South Carolina, not far from. Augusta, Georgia, but I, I think the last I heard is that those three regulation holes are now becoming a short course. I, you know, huh. I think I, I heard that at the Carolina show. Well, anyway, um, I think the only issue with what you're mentioning is just the cost. Yeah, no, it would be pre- it would 
not prohibitively. The lights would, would have be to be expensive. awesome. You can do it on a yeah. short course. One of the cool things is we played the Arrow Club in Myrtle Beach. I mean, we didn't really have to go look for a golf ball because no. all the shots were from, what, 70 to 120 yards? So. Well, that's part of it, you know, but it, it, it would be very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. But the good thing is some of the light LED lights that are out now are so much better than what used to be out there. Yeah. So there's some really uh, high-quality lighting. I think where it really makes sense is in a desert environment where it's really too hot to play golf during the day mm-hmm. in the summer so people can at least go out at night and go play. Uh, it would make sense at a resort and maybe in some municipalities. Yeah. I don't think you're going to see country clubs put in lights. Yeah. What are you guys doing tonight? Ah, I've got a 7 p.m. tea time. That'd be awesome. <laughs> you just play all day. What are you doing tomorrow night? Oh, I got a 6.50 tea time. <laughs> what are you doing the next night? Oh, I got 7.20 that night. I like I like this. They've got they've got it set at ten minutes apart in theory. Maybe, I hope it's not five minutes. Actually, apart. at Angel Park at Cloud Nine, <laughs> when when I went to book my, I played by myself on a Monday night yeah. after my uh, course visits. You can only book tee times in twenty minute increments. Oh and I, I think that was the limit play. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about Cloud Nine? Oh, the other or thing Angel was Park it was general? designed by the late Bob Cup, who's one of the really more underappreciated modern golf course architects. And I will say that the holes were inspired by holes elsewhere so i wouldn't call them replicas i would call them inspirations so they homages a, yeah they had a hole yeah. like the postage stamp at troon they had a double green uh like saint andrews they had a an island green like tpc sawgrass they had a bunker in the middle of the green like riviera so you know some people say those are tacky but i i really like them because you have to remember that most people are never going to play those golf courses mm-hmm. so the closest that the average golfer in Las Vegas, Nevada is going to come to playing the 17th at TPC Sawgrass is the Island Green at Cloud Nine. So I, I have no problems with them. You know, some people, I, I would call them probably the snobs or the elitists would be like, well, how dare they try to, you know, do the road hole somewhere else? Or how, how dare they try to do the uh, bunker in the middle of the green somewhere else? Yeah. What I say is that golf is a game for the masses. And if the masses can have an opportunity to learn more or do something that is similar or inspired by that. Maybe that sparks an interest in them yeah. learning more about the game and the architecture and, and some of those courses. So I see nothing wrong with it. One of the most successful golf courses in New Jersey, which I talked about with uh, Stephen Kay on the last Tartan Talks podcast, was the Architects Golf Club in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And that was inspired by the work of golf course architects from a number of eras. So, uh, well, you know, it- we all steal our ideas from everyone else, Matt. Are there really any original ideas in the world? That's what no, Dale Hahn told me. I not mean, anymore. he goes, yeah, yeah, anything that, that you see out here is an idea that was stolen from somewhere. And, you know, even with our magazine, I mean, we get ideas from elsewhere. And why can't you take ideas from other golf courses? And, you know, the same people that look down on those courses where holes are replicas or inspired are the ones that love the template holes. Mm-hmm. Which of CB McDonald and yeah. Seth Rayner? That's yeah. the same thing. Well, and, and you take these, whatever you want to call them, uh, homages, replicas, whatever. How many people who are playing the replica are ever going to get on the original? That's their opportunity. No, I mean, Cloud Nine in Angel Park, Las Vegas, Nevada cost $19 to play. Ridiculous. That is a heck of a lot cheaper than whatever trip to St. Andrews or Troon cost. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you could probably play Cloud Nine, I don't know, 30 times for the cost of around at TPC Sawgrass. Right, right. So so why not bring these great concepts to the masses? I'm going to leave you with this guy because there's there's a lot that we uh, we didn't talk about, just tons, tons. Scratch the surface. 
you've toured parts of Mississippi, parts of Louisiana, now parts of Nevada. This I sense a growing trend, these very ambitious 8, 9, 10, 11 course visits. Any any states you want to get to in 2022, anything on the list? Your your calendar's starting to fill up, I Well, see. it would never be possible if you didn't have someone reliable handling oh, it back stop, at the office. stop, stop. I don't know. I think I'm more concerned with getting to bed at this point than planning another mega trip. You're not that old. Okay. There may be one of a – I don't want to give it away, but there are a few in mine. Okay. Okay. We'll leave it there. If you only know us through the podcast, he is Guy Cipriano, editor-in-chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of the magazine. You can read the magazine in print or online every month. We're online at golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. It is the independent voice for the golf course superintendent and ambitious turf pro. We are very inclusive. If you want to be a part of it in any way, reach out to us in email at G-C-I-P-R-I-A-N-O at G-I-E dot net or M-L-A-W-E-L-L at G-I-E dot net. You can find us both on Twitter. Uh, Guy, do you want to tell him your handle? I'll tell him mine. At GCI Magazine Guy. So easy. And I'm just my first and last name, M-A-T-T-L-A-W-E-L-L, or M-A-T-T-L-A-W-E-L-L. Golf Course Industry is on Twitter as well. Guy, 18 plus thousand followers at? GCI Magazine. See, it's so easy. Uh, You can subscribe to our email newsletters. That is fast and firm. That's out every Tuesday. You can sign up at Golf Course Industry. Dot com, and you can also subscribe to the magazine there. And if you just listen to the podcast, that's great, too. Uh, pretty much every Tuesday with a brand new episode of either Greens with Envy, which is what you've been listening to, Beyond the Page, which goes a little deeper into the magazine, Off the Course, where I talk with folks in the industry about literally anything that is not their job, and Tartan Talks, where Guy talks with members of the uh, American Society of Golf Course Architects. Two great monthly podcasts as well that come out on Thursday, Wonderful Women of Golf with Rick Wolfel and Real Turf Techs with Trent Manning. Those focus on women and equipment techs in the industry. So six monthly podcasts, a print magazine, you can read it digitally, a website full of all the latest news from equipment and products to people at golfcourseindustry.com. There's there's a lot. I don't know how we do this. Somehow it gets done. Every month. I guess we're like the Angel Park of content. We're just a factory. 125,000 rounds a year. I don't think we're doing 125,000 pieces of content a year. No. Maybe 125,000 words, hours, tweets a year. Words, for sure. (laughs) Anyway, next time we do Greens with Envy, unless we have a bonus episode, we're going to a place, a special place. You've been. A place that people hold dearly. Yes. That Matt Lowell and Lee Carr are going to get to see for the first time. We'll just leave it there. You have been there. I have not. Lee has not. And we'll have to bring Lee in for the next Greens with Envy. He's Guy. I'm Matt. Thanks for listening to Greens with Envy. We will, uh, well, to to channel our friend Rick Wolfel, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.